The time is now. Volume 5, Episode 93. Wow, this is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt, the host of this podcast and the Vice Chair of the Labor and Employment Department here at Cozen O'Connor. I know I thank all of you so much all the time, uh, whether it's in response to emails that I get or uh, through this podcast itself, Um, but I, I really do appreciate everybody listening to this podcast. Uh, It's really uh, exciting. I just got some statistics from 2020 uh, in terms of downloads and listens to this Employment Law Now podcast, and I am uh, extremely happy to share with you uh, that apparently in 2020 alone across all of the great platforms that this podcast can be found on, uh, we had just about 90,000, that is 90,000 downloads of this podcast in the calendar year 2020. Uh, certainly, it was a year that required uh, a lot of discussion, uh, analysis, certainly with COVID-19 and uh, all that came with that. But again, really appreciative of everybody listening to the podcast, really appreciative of uh, all of you who send in comments, suggestions for future episodes, and comments on past episodes. So thank you so much. One of the things that I do love to do on this podcast is to give all of the listeners an opportunity to hear what others think and what others do about employment law issues and concerns. Human resources professionals and in-house counsel in particular, I think, benefit from hearing how other organizations think about and address important workplace and workforce issues. That's the crux of today's episode. Here with me to accomplish all of that is Donna M. Hughes, the Chief People Officer at Emblem Health. Uh, By way of some introduction uh, that I think you'll find as impressive as I do, Donna joined the Emblem Health family of companies in 2019 as its very first enterprise chief people officer. She oversees a team of more than 50 human resources professionals and is responsible for aligning enterprise-wide human capital strategies with the overall business plan. During her period at Emblem Health so far, Donna has focused on initiatives to drive engagement, retention, diversity and inclusion, and a high-performing culture during the company's rapid transformation, not to mention the past year uh, of the COVID-19 global pandemic. Prior to joining Emblem Health, uh, Donna has served as the Senior Vice President of Human Resources for Impacts Laboratories, Inc., a specialty pharmaceutical company. She is also, as if that's not enough, an accomplished attorney in her own right and has held leadership roles with various organizations, including uh, the role of Vice President Labor and Employment for Allergen, PLC, and Director and Assistant General Counsel for Circuit City Stores, Inc., 
before I finish completely uh, embarrassing Donna with this introduction, um, her rise through progressive leadership roles in the field of law uh, all the way to her tenure as a C-suite human resources executive was actually showcased by American Healthcare Leaders' December 2017 article entitled Seizing New Opportunities for Growth. Uh, she was also showcased by Profile Magazine's December 2019 article, How Donahue's Guides Teams Along the Curve of Change. And in March 2020, Crane's New York business named Donna one of New York's most notable women in talent. Donna, I could spend the whole episode on your journey <laughs> and on your accomplishments, um, but thank you so much for joining well, thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate it. And, and thank you for the gracious introduction. No, absolutely. I, I, you know, it took me more time to go through the pages and pages of your accomplishments <laughs> to whittle it down to that introduction so I can give a nice flavor of what you've done, of what you've done. So it's a, it's an impressive journey. Uh, I get to experience it because I know you so well, but I uh, really appreciate you taking some time to join the podcast in any event. A absolutely. I'm glad to be here. So how long uh, have you been actually in the human resources space doing what you do? Well, you know, it, it, it's a good question because as you mentioned, uh, you know, in my background, I did practice law um, for, for a long time. I won't say exactly how long because it'll date me a bit, <laughs> uh, but I practiced primarily employment law. And so human resource professionals were my primary clients for many years. And I spent many years as an in-house attorney with a strong dotted line to the chief human resource officer and sat on the human resource leadership team. And through that experience, learned a lot about the HR profession itself and the best practices locally as well as globally. And there came a time when I was asked to lead HR teams through various integration work streams, including workforce design, talent assessments, harmonization of HR operations. And then uh, a former executive of the company, Fred Wilkinson, who had gone on to be a CEO at a small cap pharma company, called me one day and said, Donna, when we work together, if I had legal questions, I came to you. And uh, if I had HR questions, I came to you. So I need a strategic HR leader and would like you to come be my SVP of human resources. That was in 2015. And I remain a C-suite leader in the space today. I love what I do. And I, I owe a thank you to Fred Wilkinson for thinking out the box and believing in me because I did not come through the traditional route uh, but uh, he saw something in me that that uh, he thought was going to be great support as his confidant and uh, leading an organization that was going through uh, tremendous change. It's amazing. And, and we're going to touch on a little bit later uh, this notion of mentorship, sponsorships. But you go through sort of your career in the years uh, and it's nice to think back as you tend to do on, on all the people who did make such a difference in your per professional life, put aside the personal life, uh, and they often don't realize that they made such an impact on your uh, career. Uh, that is so true. Um, I think he would be embarrassed that I, that I mentioned <laughs> his name and, and surprised, uh, but uh, he was a great, uh, uh, you know, uh, leader and also such an influence on me doing what I do today, you know, move, he told me, said to me, 
I need you to take the legal hat completely off and come be my head of HR. That that's what I need. And uh, and I'm very glad that I that I did that. And and as a consequence, I was able to serve uh, a number of uh, CEOs in the pharma space that were that were quite impressive backgrounds and and really were great examples of leadership. And I learned a lot about the business being uh, in the C-suite with such leaders and still do today with my current CEO, Karen Ignani. So let's fast forward then to, uh, to 2019 when you assumed the role of Emblem Health's chief people officer. Uh, first off, you know, for those who uh, are not familiar with Emblem Health, describe the, the nature of Emblem Health as an organization. Sure. So we're a healthcare company and uh, we have uh, 4,400 employees. We're primarily in New York City. We're also in Connecticut and uh, and up uh, into New England. And we provide healthcare insurance, but we also uh, have a provider affiliate, Advantage Care Physicians, where we provide patient care uh, and uh, both primary and specialty. And uh, we also have neighborhood care, which is connected to some of our Advantage Care sites around New York. There's 40 sites. And neighborhood care is something that we offer and to support the communities to ensure that the communities in New York City and other boroughs are getting what they need to live their healthiest lives. And that's not just for our members and patients anyone can walk into a neighborhood care and get support. And so we, we really do pride ourselves in being a full healthcare care uh, enterprise that supports our communities and are really challenged to uh, address uh, disparities in healthcare, cultural competency in healthcare, and help our communities thrive. And so what were some of your priorities uh, when you came in in 2019 and assumed the uh, chief people officer role? Well, I did a listening tour throughout the organization when I first started uh, because the voice of the employee is very important to me in discerning what is needed and where I should focus. Much of what I learned was that we were in the process of integrating companies and the organization frankly, was experiencing some stress over the integration of the functions. So I focused on ways to break down silos and drive an enterprise mindset and culture, re-educating the organization on the benefits of being an enterprise, not just the benefit financially, but what's important to the employee is what's in it for them. So making sure we could express that to them, why it was a good thing for, for each and every employee for us to, to take this approach. And training leaders to break through silos when trying to integrate and choose the best processes and practices, the strengths from each organization and you know, driving through conflict to get to the right solutions. I introduced the company's uh, corporate goal of strengthening the employee experience to rally around uh, the positive changes to come, get everyone to rally around the positive changes for the employee experience. And that was changes in our onboarding, in engagement, in 
diversity, equity, inclusion, in performance management, and also in revisiting our values. Uh, we, we recently rolled out new values after working on a uh, values initiative uh, for the organization we are today, but also to describe the organization we want to be in the future. Is there a significance to, I know uh, there are a lot of organizations out there that uh, have made the transition in title from chief human resources officer, for example, to a title such as yours, chief people officer. Is there a significance to the transition in, in that kind of title? Well, you know, the human resources profession has... Um, like most professions, has, you know, morphed along the way, you know, years ago, you know, was there was a lot of focus on, you know, labor and management of that. And then it was more of a personnel office type role. Then it became much more business partner role. Then it became much more strategic. And now, you know, I think the focus is really that you know, HR is a business within a business. We're not just a support function. We are a business uh, within the business. And so, you know, chief people officers, you know, strikes me as more progressive um, than, than chief human resource officer, although there's nothing wrong with it. I, 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 I you know, wear that title proudly, but uh, you, you'll hear many other titles as well. The most interesting title I've heard uh, in the last couple of years was chief happiness officer. I can't remember <laughs> what company chose that one, uh, but I, I said, I don't, you don't worry. You don't have to put that in my title. I don't want to be responsible for everyone's happiness. I think that taps in a little, little above my pay grade, uh, but chief people officer suits me fine. Yeah, Chief Happiness Officer. I mean, that's a lot of pressure to deliver. A lot of pressure. Title. A lot of pressure. <laughs> um, and, and I think what it speaks to is that, you know, you are there to address the people and, and sort of, you know, address policies and practices um, to promote people. And it's always funny because, and I'm sure you've heard this as well, from an optics and a perception standpoint, so many people within an organization view uh, human resources as sort of a, either a support function or simply as a mouthpiece for the organization as opposed to a, a group that will support the people, support the workforce. How, how do you react to that perception when you hear that? Yeah, so um, I think organizations that that fail to understand how critical talent is to the greater success of the organization and fail to look at human resources from a strategic standpoint are, are risking competitive edge. They're risking the opportunity to have the greatest of talent uh, and, and really missing the mark in terms of what will move the needle for the organization. And I have, and, it's, and it starts with the CEO. You know, there are some organizations where, you know, even today that the head of HR does not report to the CEO. And, you know, maybe in, in some organizations that's okay and, and they're still doing strategic work and sitting side by side with the senior leaders. But, but for many that, you know, that would be a flag, that would be a sign that uh, there is not the same importance to that function that there is to other functions. So 
I have been lucky enough to, to be the confidant of the CEO in the senior HR roles that I have held and have CEOs who understood the importance of having uh, a, a chief human resource or a people officer that is strategic in nature and understands the business and brings strategic added value along and alike to that of their fellow colleagues in the executive suite. So uh, I'm going to ask you, and I'm, I'm really interested to hear uh, your thoughts on things uh, having to do with employee engagement and certainly diversity and inclusion. Um, but I want to start in the present in 2021. One of the things that I always uh, think in-house corporate professionals really appreciate is to hear about the successes and the flip side, the worries uh, of other organizations, to sort of level set and get a, a sense of what other organizations are doing. 2021, as we all know, is certainly not without its significant and unique challenges. What are some of the things from a human resources standpoint, Donna, that generally keep you up at night these days? Yeah. So you said 2021. However, I don't think I can accurately state what keeps me up at night without starting with 2020. Yeah, um, I'm pretending 2020 never happened. That's why. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Because I know you, I know you want to move past it, but we are still <laughs> in it, quite frankly. Uh, and uh, so I, 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 you know, it was unprecedented for everyone. Obviously, that's an understatement. Um, but it was a year that changed the way human resources professionals do business. Certainly, we lead with empathy and ask leaders to lead with empathy. But before 2020, many of us would, I dare say, manage down emotion, avoid, you know, be taught to avoid disclosing inf too much information or over receiving too much information. And of course, with my legal background, you know how that goes. Um, definitely, you know, use the information that's needed. And, that, and, 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 and that's enough. <laughs> but uh, all of that went out the win window with 2020. As you know, as I read in one article, we put the human back in human resources and across the country, across the world, it, we met issues that came with COVID-19 that we had not seen before. And we had to be first responders to our colleagues. And that meant we had to show up differently. And with that said, what keeps me up at night is that we are still in it. This is a, this is a long journey of unrest um, for colleagues. And even though there's a vaccine, the light at the end of the tunnel isn't shining all that brightly. It, it, we can see it a little bit, but not like we wanna see it. In fact, on, on this Friday, March 12th, my organization, Emblem Health, is having a Teams Live Day of Remembrance to pay tribute to our colleagues who we lost due to COVID-19. So this is still very raw. And I lose sleep over the duration of this journey for our colleagues, living it personally while also serving in healthcare and having to speak about it and, and, and speak to it every single day. Second, I would say to, to, to continue this journey, COVID or not, you know, we must keep competitive edge. And we are a very fast-paced fast company in transformation. And so 
it is my responsibility and part of my role to help leaders manage that pace and know when to stop and further assess and make sustainable choices and, uh, and empower others uh, to pull coattails and say, hey, just wait a second, let's think about it, let's analyze this further. Um, or if you move fast and something fails, know how to fail quickly and move forward. That is something that we all have to do as leaders, but I think as the chief people officer uh, focused on the behaviors of, of colleagues and how they engage with each other, being at the forefront of that, that for them is, is something not necessarily keeps me up at night, but it, it is something that I'll have the two o'clock, the three o'clock eureka moment on and have to get up and write a note and say, oh, let me, let me speak to someone about that tomorrow, or let me introduce this, this might help. I do have those types of, you know, early morning, late night thoughts. And, you know, you touched on something a moment ago that I really believe in as well. You, you talked about the empathy and how this whole global pandemic changed in some respects how you deal with human resources issues. We talk so much, not just on this podcast, but as lawyers um, and uh, as HR professionals, we talk about legal obligations and legal requirements. And we talk about human resources best practices. I do believe that there is a psychology to the COVID-19 pandemic. So, for example, when we get to a point in time where it's legally permissible to mandate X or Y or require people to come back, you really do need to take into account what the psychology is of the workforce that you have at your particular company and how that psychology may lag a little behind what you can otherwise permissibly do as a matter of law or as a matter of HR best practices. It's, it's that psychology that I think has to impact your decision making as well. Absolutely, because you're, you're, it, it, you know, how you respond to your associates while going through something like this so traumatic and uh you know meeting them where they are and of course keeping business operations at you know the top of the list because you can't have jobs if you don't have a company right so of course biz business operations and and progressing um and focused on you know uh you know revenue and all of those things you must do but it is necessary to really know the psychology of the, and the impact of what's going on and make decisions that are decisions that are consistent with your values, with your culture, and that which will retain your workforce. Right now, through 2020 and still today, companies are on spotlight uh, uh, as to what they've been doing and what they've done well and what they've done not so well, they will live with for a very long time. How we respond to the crisis and how we respond to bringing folks back after vaccine or how you respond to having to deal with those who have been out there through it all, like our uh, provider colleagues uh, who have been in the thick of it throughout the uh, pandemic, like our sales colleagues, who while they were remote for a period of time, then they had to go back out um, because that's where the work is. How we support them and how we deal with bringing back those who are remote 
is something that our colleagues will forever remember. And I, I ha I'm happy to say that, you know, through surveys and through discussions and through focus groups, you know, our colleagues are pretty happy with how we've been handling it thus far. Uh, but that, that is definitely, uh, you know, a measuring stick for corporations today. So COVID-19 uh, and the pandemic, no, no dispute how it's impacted uh, human resources and the workplace generally. Um, but certainly things have also changed, putting the pandemic aside 2021 uh, and five or 10 years ago. Um, you know, having the history and the experiences that you've had um, and putting, again, COVID-19 aside, what do you believe is the toughest challenge when it comes to HR in 2021 generally, as opposed to what it was like 10 years ago? Hmm. You know, um, I, I have to say, hands down, what's different today than 10 or more years ago is the incessant underscore incessant use of social media. <laughs> I knew that was coming. I knew that was coming. Uh, I, you know, technology is a really good thing. You know, I, I, I'm in favor of it. Uh, mostly, mostly. Uh, we use social media to brand as an employer, to highlight our associates and their achievements, you know, to, to, to attract folks to say, here's our employer value proposition, and this is why you should choose us. But when it comes to employee use of social media, we do have policies and expect them to be followed. And in 2020 and continuing still today, it being a very emotionally charged time, we have seen the consequences. And by we, I mean the, the people listening to your podcast, the, the country, the world. We have seen the consequences of people acting out on camera or in posts inconsistent with their employer's values or the positions that employers have taken with respect to topics like protesting, wearing masks, Black Lives Matter movement, uh, up to the insurrection on, on Capitol Hill. And, and companies have not been afraid to terminate or discipline their uh, employees in the wake of all of this, you know, say publicity and spotlight on social media, on the news, on cameras and, and, and so forth. But then, you know, the, those are, those are the, 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 uh, the issues that we've seen that are bigger than, than life or that maybe the answer might seem to be, you know, easily at the fingertips of employers. This was egregious in our mind. We're ready to, to, to take action. But more often, there are instances that are not so clearly a violation of policy or inconsistent with values where employers are ready to take a very hard stand. It could be in these times, in these challenging times, more nuanced, more a differing of beliefs or practices. And it's those instances where employers must support the right to have different views, but at the same time, ensure colleagues have psychological safety when they come to work and they are respected. And, and that is what makes a distinction in a culture, really being able to strike that balance so that we can all be shoulder to shoulder working together for the right 
cause of the organization. And it's gotten so much more difficult uh, now than it was 10 years ago. As you said, so the proliferation of the use and access to uh, social media technology, but also we have so much more blurred the lines between personal conduct, personal statements, and what's brought into the workplace, either virtual exactly. or physical. Exactly. Absolutely. And and I do think that employers struggle with, uh, you know, when they can act, when they can't act. I mean, you know, policies don't prescribe everything um, and um, they can't. Um, but you have to, you know, definitely make, you know, judgment calls. You have to definitely be consistent uh, and then you have to definitely, you know, call Mike Schmidt at Cozen O'Connor. <laughs> that's, oh, always, that's always a good one to have in your pocket. <laughs> I love when I'm not the one who has to make the shameless plug on my own podcast. I, uh, I appreciate that. We could sort of end right there. Thanks for coming, Donna. And uh, no, I uh, <laughs> thank you. For, I appreciate you saying that. Um, but I do want to talk a little bit about how organizations best get buy-in of uh, workplace culture and practices across the entire enterprise. It's it's easy for you and I to talk about this um, as lawyers, or in your case, you know, as lawyer and human resources professional. It's very often easy to get appropriate buy-in on HR issues within the HR department, uh, and oftentimes even the C-suite of executives. How has Emblem Health been successful in getting the HR message and the desired culture from HR down to the managers, the supervisors who are in the day-to-day -day trenches with your workforce? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, first, let me say, I believe everyone, everyone, regardless of rank, has a role in our culture. And we recently made that clear through work on our values and involving the entire organization, not just a top-down approach. Uh, leaders certainly met to discuss desired culture, but we also had focus groups through the organization with colleagues to discuss the attributes they wanted to see going forward and the attributes they thought we should leave behind that did not define us or should not define us and we also surveyed uh, the rest of the organization to have their thoughts uh, before we made any changes. And as a result, aggregating all that information, at the top of 2021, we came out with new values, empower, deliver, and do it together. And a new commitment to the organization on the behaviors and the competencies expected of everyone in modeling those values. And this wasn't an external marketing thing. This was something internal. This is internal, app internal, and uh, to you know grassroots type effort because it certainly uh, you know the work uh, of externals. It, and I've done it, you know, I've done it this way in other organizations, larger organizations, the work of externals uh, can be helpful uh, in, in, in branding. Uh, but what you need to do to make sure that you really do resonate with your workforce is to ask them. I mean, they're the ones that are in it every day. And so, and, and, and during this exercise, we found, you know, some of us found that, you know, leaders maybe thought that we were showing up in a certain way and colleagues were saying, mm, I don't know, not so much. Or, you know, uh, there were certain themes that, 
you know, rose to the top in terms of what people really enjoy about our culture and what they want to make sure we don't lose as we continue to transform. So in order to be really honest about the culture the way it is and where you want it to go, you need buy-in from everyone. It can't be just words on paper. And so it was important for us to do that work internally and really hear the voice of the employee because it's not just what we do that will make us successful. It's, it's how we do it. No question. Um, and I, I also want to talk in that vein about an issue that I know is so important to you and to Emblem Health, uh, and that's diversity and inclusion. Um, here are all different kinds of terms for that concept. Um, I hear things like diversity and equity and inclusion and, uh, you know, workplace and cultural sensitivity, all different uh, terms for this. But but what does diversity and inclusion mean to you? Let's let's start there. Yeah, um, I, w- I, I have to say, you know, that for me and and as the chief people officer responsible for uh, DEI uh, in the organization, that our employee base resembles the community that we serve, that our employee base feels they can be themselves and they are included in every aspect that allows colleagues to thrive. And that you are not just included, not just invited, but welcomed without barriers, that you are welcomed and that in place are the requisite avenues of support, sponsorship, and allyship afforded to others. So since you've arrived at uh, Emblem Health, how have you and your team gone about identifying what had worked and where they where there might be a need for further improvement in this area of diversity and inclusion? Well, it, w- it won't surprise you because I've already said that I listen to the voice of the employees. Um, it, I, I have found that it has done uh, done me well and done organizations well in hitting the mark when you are doing uh, different work and you want to make sure that it sticks and that it uh, is true to what your colleagues see and live and breathe every day in your walls or in your virtual walls. So that is what we first did was invite employees to share their views and raise their voices. Um, In, you know, last year after the murder of George Floyd, we did programming with Candid Conversations. Uh, Last year into this year, the DEI Council has hosted biweekly coffee hours for employees to share what they think is working, what needs attention. And we took that information that we received in these different forums in 2020 and from it developed our 2021 DEI deliverables. And we published them and invited our colleagues to be champions and to participate in the work streams and to hold us accountable for them. It's out there, we're working together and we're making sure that it's getting done. And so what you mentioned your DNI council what it, what is the DNI council and when was that established? Yeah, the DNI council was established a year ago and it is a, a group of sponsors of our employee resource groups and additional professionals that uh, are cross functional and are is the body to a uh, governing body to make sure 
that we are ensuring an inclusive workforce in our organization and that we are, you know, uh, helping our employer resource groups and driving the right policies and practices and engagement throughout our talent management program to ensure that DEI is front and center of our organization and a part of how we live and breathe. Did Not just see? something off the side of a desk, yeah. but a part of who we are. Right. It's easy to just, you know, put something in the paper and stick it in a drawer. Um, uh, but that's not enough, certainly. Right. Exactly. Your DNI council, is that made up of, uh, you said cross-functioning, is it made up of people throughout the company, different roles, different experiences, different seniority? Yeah. The, w- the way we started was to have those who were executive or are executive sponsors of the ERGs, and then some of our human resource professionals that um, uh, work within the DEI space. And we have expanded that to build uh, committees, groups, champions, liaisons across the organization at different levels who focus on different aspects of what the DEI Council has learned from the organization needs to be addressed, whether it's from a workforce standpoint, a workplace standpoint, or a marketplace standpoint. So we have colleagues at all different levels who are liaisons that are running work streams to support change in those areas. And the DNI deliverables, that's sort of a living, breathing document? It, it is. Uh, we've, we've, we've published it and we are working towards those deliverables. And as we go along this journey, you know, we will definitely make sure what is it that is working? What is it that we need to change? Are we achieving what we want to achieve? And um, I mean, there are lots of different things that an organization can do to to promote this. You mentioned uh, employee resource groups uh, a couple of times. Have have you found that to be successful? Have you found employee resource groups to be something that uh, your workforce has welcomed at Emblem? Definitely. Um, We we have uh, several employee resource groups. And what employees tell us is that these groups uh, make help help them to have a voice within the organization, uh, help them with belonging, help them with mentoring, and also help them bring to the organization aspects of their diverse backgrounds that are important to business initiatives. We serve a very diverse community. And the greatness of having a diverse workforce is to be able to have their experiences and different cultures influence how we deliver in our customer service, how we deliver to our patients, you know, just examples of, you know, cultural competency and what you need to know uh, with respect to, for instance, uh, something that we did uh, last year, which was to build a curriculum around helping transgender, helping helping uh, providers understand what they needed to be focused on in delivering the best and competent care to transgender patients. Uh, you know, things like that. 
and it, and the, and the the our group Prism, which is one of our ERGs uh, focused on LGBTQ plus uh, concerns, was highly instrumental in building that curriculum. So the ERGs are very helpful, and then individuals who are you know looking to support the organization in various aspects, and maybe it's you know, not necessarily being a leader in an ERG, but being an, a leader of a certain work stream, uh, you know, is very helpful a, as well. And you touched on something, and, and I've actually heard uh, the CEO of my firm, Michael Heller, uh, make this point as recently as today. You know, for those organizations uh, like Emblem, like uh, my firm, Cozen, uh, who are serious and passionate about diversity and inclusion, it's not just about the statistics. It's not a matter of getting diverse opinions, diverse experiences uh, at the table, at these uh, employee resource groups, simply for numbers purposes, but because it allows you to be a better organization and be better at delivering the services or producing the goods that you are uh, doing. That, that, that spot on, Mike, spot on, um, because, you know, what I think is most important from a steps perspective, you know, that an organization can take in this area is first, don't try to be like the company down the street. Be honest about where your organization is in its journey. Don't start throwing up numbers and metrics and so forth uh, without really uh, thinking about where you are in your journey and what are the needs of your employee base, whether the needs are your of your customer, you know, and and then look later about whether the numbers are following. But first, you've got to figure out what that part is. Assess your foundation. What I tell my team and the organization is that DEI efforts fail when they are considered just initiatives. Like I said, you know, off the corner of the desk. You know, it, we've been talking about DEI for 30 years. This is not new, and it didn't happen in, in 2020. There's just something tragic in 2020 happened that really kind of propelled um, organizations to, to, you know, frankly, scramble to figure out how they were going to be move the needle and be a part of change. And uh, uh, I, I don't look at DEI as initiatives, but rather the fabric of the culture that should be woven into every aspect of talent management. And unfortunately, some organizations are really, as you said, so concerned what might be a great statement to put out or the numbers of people of color that they have or the millions of dollars that they will donate, um, right. that they miss the point that any house will crumble if the foundation is rocky. You can bring in great talent only to lose them because you didn't do the work to support an inclusive culture. You can give leaders training, but it won't be effective if the leaders aren't required to in some way put action in that's, that the training uh, is working by showing improved outcomes. So, you know, it, it's a mistake, I believe, and I know uh, there are differing views on this, but I know there's a camp that uh, shares my view. It's a mistake to just flash numbers and pictures of, you know, beautifully uh, diverse photographs uh, of your organization without, you know, really taking the time to first assess your foundation and every aspect of your talent management program for inclusive and equitable practices. 
No question, and um, it's more than just the recruitment aspect of, as you aspect as you just touched on. It's about retention. It's about uh, bringing the diverse uh, opinions and experiences, and and promoting uh, these diverse experiences and opinions. And that leads me very well to my next question. You know, what what's your thought on the appropriate use of mentorships and sponsorships within an organization uh, in order to do that? Yeah. So. Like, like I said, it, it should be a part of your talent management program. And we are actually uh, going to be rolling out this year. We're working on it right now. Um, mentorship program uh, and leadership program for the entire organization. And our ERGs will be very much involved in supporting the efforts of the design of that mentorship program so that we can reach everyone and anyone in the organization who wants some level of support. But more importantly, those who may be underrepresented can have the kind of support that they may need that hasn't been afforded them, that could have been afforded or, or may have been afforded to others at some point in time in their career. And so that's the way we're going to be addressing things like that. Um, you know, in my career, uh, I have had uh, mentors and sponsors that I have, you know, that have come to um, me and my life in different ways, you know, quite organically, but not everyone has that. And, and often when leaders are unaware of unconscious biases, that they lean into people who have the same interests as they do, the same background that they do, when they're not aware that they're doing that, they also aren't aware that it could be to the exclusion of others. And so sometimes you're mentoring people, uh, you know, because of likeness, and you don't realize that you, as a consequence, you're being exclusionary. And that's where we want to, you know, take care of the barriers that may be there for others, break them down and give space and opportunity for everyone to, like I said earlier, have access. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And, um, you know, you mentioned when we talked a little bit before about uh, some of the social justice movements and, and things that are happening now in 2020 and 21, you mentioned Black Lives Matter. Social justice movements really did take off in the past couple of years, even more than they had before. We had hashtag Me Too coming to the forefront beginning in 2018. Certainly, as you said, Black Lives Matter in 2020. Earlier this week, we celebrated International Women's Day. Um, you know, when, when you've been talking about and we've been talking about um, a, a shift in how we deal with the workforce to where we're now opening our arms, we're not we're not suppressing empathy, we're promoting empathy, we're promoting openness and inclusion. There is a flip side to that. How, how do you as an organization best address these causes and these issues that are on people's minds without inappropriately stepping into their personal lives? Yeah, it. it it's more difficult than it used to be <laughs> um, to separate. Lines are blurred. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Lines get blurred. And, um, but I do think organizations are more comfortable today saying that, um, that that's okay in a sense that 
employees have emotions and concerns and ups and downs. And we are now being much more intentional about how we support our colleagues and recognizing that they will bring those issues to work, even if we don't know it, because it will show up in lack of productivity. It'll show up in disengagement. It may show up in attrition. It may show up in conflict with colleagues. And in this time of remote working, let me give a simple example. You see that there's an employee who used to always be on video. And, you know, um, around the time of uh, George Floyd's murder or around the time of, you know, the insurrection on Capitol Hill, they weren't using their video as much and, and that they never really kind of got back into that flow for a while. You know, that could be a sign that they're not okay. And leaders who lead with empathy check in. Are you okay? Is there anything I can help you with? And then remember the resources. Maybe the employee just needs a minute. Maybe they need PTO. Maybe they need flexibility in their schedule. Maybe they need a leave of absence. Maybe they need the employee assistance program. But we, we have resources to support each other and we should be using them. You don't have to dive deep into personal lives and and. And you shouldn't. That is still my, uh, you know, it, it, it counsel to to leaders. But you also shouldn't ignore the fact that what's going on outside the walls of the organization may penetrate the walls of the organization. It's a great point, and and probably the best takeaway is, you know, we can no longer generalize and make assumptions. This very much is an individualized thing often with employees, and it's a balancing act uh, that that organizations have to make. Exactly, exactly. So I asked you before um, about how you go about and how you've been successful getting the message and getting the desired culture down to the supervisors, the managers who were in the trenches. I want to now go upward and, and ask you how you've been able to find success in having your organization senior leaders right up to your CEO buy into these principles and practice. Yes. So I believe that the best buy-in uh, came when we did focus groups on values and culture and a lot of information came back that could be presented to our senior leadership and CEO and said to say to them, this is what we've learned by asking questions, by giving forums, by, you know, having, you know, hour long conversations with a small group of colleagues. You know, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many we did. We, we you know, it was a roadshow basically to make sure that we were talking to people and and it was, you know, it was eye opening, you know, some things we definitely knew other things were like, oh, okay, didn't, didn't, didn't really know that that's how our colleagues felt. And so it was important to then say, when we look to move the culture and move the needle, let's be real intentional about it. Because, you know, we spent all this time talking to them, they're now going to say, okay, what, what, what's the result of that? What does that mean? And um, it what also helped with, I'll say, getting the buy-in specifically on what's important to the organization. And we just were talking a lot about diversity. You know, diversity was the number two attribute that colleagues wanted to stay front and center as one of our priorities. 
second only to care, given that we are a healthcare company that resonated with most of our colleagues. You know, so, you know, our colleagues recognize how important it is. They know that DEI is a business imperative. Uh, They know that, you know, uh, there are studies after studies that, that, that say that, you know, diversity from the board, you know, through the workforce gives you that competitor edge to be more creative, more profitable, more connected to the desires of your consumers than say your competitors. But, but what's really appealing to, to our workforce and what are the drivers for us is that it, it came through clear as a bell that our colleagues enjoy each other and the differences that we bring to the table when we engage with each other and that they know that every day it's making us better in providing culturally competent care and service to our patients, members, and customers. And that's the kind of organization they want to be a part of. So that information was just illuminating. And that's how you get the buy-in. I, I, I can't take any credit for that. I give it all to the employees who spoke honestly and, uh, you know, openly about what they want to continue in the organization. That's terrific. Um, So I got one last question for you, and this is a bit of a prognostication. Um, Where do you see things? Where do you hope to see things in this area of diversity and inclusion five years from now? I really... You knew every question was not going to be a simple question, Don. No, yeah, that's not a simple question because, you know, I think I've I've been asked that question every five years for the last, you know, 20 plus years. How about the next seven? I'll I'll change it up. Where do you see things or hope to see things in the next seven years? How about that? Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) You know, surely, um, I, I really hope that the energy that you see um, around this uh, very important imperative for companies uh, and for, and just for community and just how we interact and, 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 you know, just how we live and support each other. I I hope that that energy uh, is, is still there. I hope that it's greater. I hope that we see, you know, really great change. I hope that we speak about it in a way that is, you know, that people are much more comfortable with and, and that uh, there is less tension around this. And it's just a way to be because more of us are getting, you know, the benefits and understanding the benefits of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it is not what, what I think is a concern for those with opposition. It is not that there is less of the pie when there is diversity, equity, and inclusion. There is more, there's more fruit, there's more, you know, uh, flour, there's more sugar, there's more pie. That's what happens. It doesn't take away. It it adds. It's additive over and over again. And so what I really hope to see is that more and more of us get it. We understand and we become a part of that change. Well, we will 
without a doubt, continue the discussion. Uh, I would love to continue the discussion uh, with you as well um, down the road, but that is probably as perfect a last thought as you can give. It's amazing how fast an hour goes, but uh, such is life these days, I suppose. Um, Donna Hughes, the Chief People Officer at Emblem Health, and dare I say you would make a pretty good happiness officer uh, <laughs> <laughs> as well, but uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you uh, coming onto the podcast today and sharing your experiences, sharing your successes and views. Uh, it's really been a pleasure talking about this with you. Oh, same here, Mike. Thank you for having me. That was extremely substantive. Uh, I hope you found it as informative as I did. Great food for thought uh, for ourselves and to bring back to our organizations. And as I said to Donna just a moment ago, we will continue this discussion. But that is all the time we have for today's discussion. Thanks so much for listening today as always. And until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.